We're blessed this morning to worship together on the Lord's Day, aren't we? We want to open God's Word this morning and return to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, a great chapter. Every chapter in the Bible is great, but Romans 9, coming off of the end of Romans 8, is a very wonderful doctrinal passage that, that lifts up our view of God and His sovereignty and what He does in salvation. And we're now entering a great section here of Scripture. As I said last week, Romans 9 through 11 is specifically a part of Scripture that's about Israel and about God's election. But this section here in Romans 9 has angered a lot of people. It's very controversial. And I think you'll see as we go through it why it's controversial. But I'm getting ahead. Let me, let me just read it to you as I like to do. I want to read the text. I want to explain the text. I want to apply the text. So Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac, your seed will be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So we've come today to one of the most difficult passages in Romans. Indeed, one of the most controversial. Romans 9 through 11 is controversial in many ways. People argue about Israel and the church and the relationship together of those two. And we'll get to some of those questions. But Romans 9, 6 through 29 is very controversial, not because of necessarily the relationship between Israel and the church, but because of the doctrines taught here. Here's what James Montgomery Boyce said. He said this was this section, verses 6 through 29, was the most difficult portion of the entire Bible, more difficult even than those very confusing sections in Daniel, Revelation, and other books that deal with prophecy. Now, I agree it is difficult. Not difficult necessarily to interpret. I think there are some Things in those other books that are harder to work out and interpret. But here it's difficult to accept and believe the doctrine that Paul is teaching here. It's difficult for our minds in today's world especially to accept and believe what he is teaching here about God's sovereignty. Yes, there are interpretive challenges. Paul quotes from the Old Testament multiple times. And he's weaving in and out of the Old Testament. And he's teaching us in his letter here, which is New Testament. That's challenging. But it's difficult here just to accept the truth of God's word. Because we are in a culture, in a world, that says it's all about you. It's all about me. It's all about what I think and what I decide and what I do and what I have the power to do, and I make all the decisions, and I'm the master of my fate, and I'm the captain of the ship. And here's Paul saying things like, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. This chapter will really show you that 
God sovereignly elects, that he sovereignly rejects, often called reprobation, and that he is completely justified in doing both. In fact, John Piper, when he was looking at these doctrines, struggled with them back in the early 80s. And so he just set about studying this one chapter. If he could get his mind right on this one chapter, then he felt like he could understand election and neither believe it or reject it. And so he wrote a book from his study just on this chapter. He called it the justification of God. Not justification like we are justified, but to prove, to defend the sovereignty of God from this passage, which is what Paul is doing in chapter 9 here. It will show you all of these things, all of these doctrines. And if you want to get an idea of where he's going, look at verse 13. I just read, Jacob I love, but Esau hated. Now, now verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? So 6 through 29 really is Paul defending the righteousness of God and how he's dealt with Israel. And that involves election. And then he says, may it never be. It's not possible that God could be unrighteous. And verse 15, now he backs that up. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That, my friends, is such a deep theological statement right there, what I just read to you, that we need to go into it in depth, that I might just spend one sermon on one or two of those verses as I'm going to do today. Why? Because these doctrines are rejected. They're not taught. And then when they are taught, they're often rejected. But we will see they're right here in Scripture. For today, we just want to see how Paul begins this argument in verse 6. And how he goes on through this passage and into the next paragraph. And into the next paragraph. And link these together every Sunday so that you see the whole argument. Just in 6-13, through 13, which we began today with that journey, 6 through 13. I want to show you just the overall picture, the bird's eye view of what Paul is doing here. And we're only going to get to verse 6 today. I had hoped to take the whole paragraph, then I cut it in half with two sermons. And last night, I couldn't sleep all night, and I just thought, we're just doing verse 6, because that's enough today. That's enough today. We'll be back next week for the rest, or the next part. So here's the overall passage as an outline like this. God's word never fails. That's Paul's argument. That's why he preached or taught one through five here in his letter. He had a heart for Israel. They have all these promises, but God's word never fails. Why, Paul? Because not all are true Israel. That's what we're going to look at today in verse six. And then his second proof to show us God's word never fails is because not all Abraham's children are chosen. And of course, that brings up the issue of election And he spends the rest, pretty much the rest of the chapter down to 29, dealing with the topic of election. Because when Paul brings up election, just like today, people say, that's not fair. That's not fair that he didn't choose all of Israel. That's not fair that he didn't choose some and he just chose others. So really, the discussion of election is very important in this chapter. But it's there because there's a big question. What about Israel? What about Israel? So there's your overview of the paragraph. I like to give that because it is tied together in one unit. But we're going to slow down now and go verse one, or, one verse today, maybe two verses, three verses next week. So today, let's just look at verse 6. This verse sets the stage for the rest 
of this. Really, it sets the stage for everything in 9 through 11. Everything Paul says in chapters 9 through 11, come back to what is said right here in verse 6. If we understand that verse, then the rest of the passage is going to make sense. The rest of the chapter, chapter 10, chapter 11, it's all going to make sense to us if we understand what's happening here in verse 6. Remember, last week we looked at 1 through 5, and that's the introduction. That's Paul showing us why he cares for his people so much. Before he gets into the theology and the depths of it, he just wants to let us know he loves his people. He has a burden for them. He wishes he could give his life for them because they have all these promises that they have rejected. Look at verse 4. He says, my kinsmen, the, the Jews, they are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's such a wonderful teaching. He just breaks out in amen. They have received all these promises, the greatest being Christ himself in the flesh, who is the Son of God. So since Paul's day, Israel, though, has not received all of these promises. Israel has not believed. Israel has not, as a whole, come to saving faith. So that brings up what we're going to look at here in verse 6. In verse 6, I want you to see two facts that every believer today should understand about God's dealings with Israel. How has God dealt with Israel? How is he dealing with Israel now? How will he deal with Israel in the future? It's important to understand because it helps us put our Bibles together. How do we put the old with the new? How do we put the new with the old? How do we think biblical from start to finish here and understand who God is, what he's doing, and even a bit of why he's doing it? God doesn't tell us all the reasons that he does things. He does get into some of the why, though, here later in Romans 9. Let's look at the first fact here. God's promise never fails. The beginning of verse 6, God's promise never fails. Paul starts off, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Everything else, all the way through the end of chapter 11, everything else in this section points right back to this one statement. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Just because all Israel is not believing in Paul's day or throughout church history or right now does not mean God's word has failed. That's the theme of the whole section. God's word never fails. No one can lose their salvation, Paul said in Romans 8. No one can lose it. No one can take it from you. God's not going to take it from you. Christ isn't going to take it from you. Satan can't take it from you. The world can't take it from you. You can't take it from yourself. What about Israel, though, Paul? What about Israel? God elected them, it says in the Old Testament. They don't believe. They had all these judgments. They have more judgments. Christ said that the Romans would come and destroy their city in 70 A.D. What about Israel? Why is the church mainly Gentiles today? Mainly Gentiles in Paul's day. What about Israel? Did God fail to keep his promises? How can you say, Paul, that God is faithful to his elect when his promises to Israel don't seem to have come about? And Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God's word in the Old Testament, the the promises of God, that's what it means, the word of God here. These promises that God made to Israel, the list that he just gave here in verse 4 and 5. It's not as if all of those promises have failed. God's word 
the whole Old Testament, you could say, even all through the prophets, as they point back to these promises and remind the people what God has promised them and tell the people to be faithful to their God. The word here for failed, the Greek word means to fall, to break apart. It's used, a word in scripture used in the book of Acts to describe ships on the sea. The word means to drift in that context back and forth, to be blown off course, to run aground. It's used for other items other than ships when they fall apart, when they fail, when they weaken, when they fall to the ground. So Paul is saying, it's not as if the word of God has fallen to the ground and is useless. God's word is still true. Just because we don't see what we think we should see today, Paul says, doesn't mean that God's word has failed. Don't think, because not every Israelite has these promises applied to them right now or back then, that God hasn't done what he promised to do. Israel has not been abandoned by God, nor has his word failed. Paul's going to get to all of that in this section. God's promises never fail. Think about it. It's impossible. The God, who is a true and faithful God, would ever say something, would ever promise something, and it fail. If that's the case, that undermines the whole gospel, doesn't it? How can God promise to save you? How can God promise that he will persevere you? How could God say he declares you righteous if his promises fail? He does not turn his words aside. Isaiah 31, 2. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 48. Everything else fades. Everything else falls. Everything else breaks apart. We break apart and fall apart physically, sometimes spiritually. Not God. God says, so my word will be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Whether the word goes out for a saving purpose or a judgment purpose, that is the intent that God has sent his word out for. It never returns void. It never returns empty. God is not a man that he should lie, the Bible says, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? Numbers 23, 19. God's word can't fail. When you read the Bible, you need to know that it is trustworthy because it's written by God. God is not a liar like man is. God is not untrue. God doesn't promise things and then walk them back later. God doesn't change his mind. We were discussing that this morning in my systematic theology class, that many American Christians think that God learns and adapts as he goes. That things happen in time and that God changes his mind and says, oh, I didn't know that guy was going to turn out to be a sinner again. He's sinning again. I just saved him. Forget him. I'm throwing him out the next day. God doesn't do that. God's promises Stand forever. Now let's look at the second fact that you need to know. And this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Not all the people in the nation of Israel are elect. Not all the people in the nation of Israel are elect. Paul says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And he's saying that. And then he moves on to his second point, which we'll look at next week. That's all he needs to say. Because if you're a Jewish person that's saved, and you're wondering this, and you're reading the book of Romans, they would understand that. They would understand what he's talking about there. They would understand this idea of a remnant. 
They would understand this idea of election. So with that, I want to move through four subpoints here just to lead you to the last one, number four, which feeds back into the verse here. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. We need to understand some background. It's one of the reasons I slowed down here because we're just not all used to the Old Testament timeline, the story. And when Paul quotes all these verses that he's going to quote, you see there in verse 7 he quotes, verse 9 he quotes, verse 13, verse 12. He's quoting from the Old Testament and we don't know the context of those verses. And we, most of us don't, even if we've read those chapters, if we've read those books, it's a bit of a gear switch. We're throwing it into reverse sometimes to jump over to the Old Testament. But in that day, they probably memorized. In fact, these Jewish Christians probably grew up memorizing all of the Pentateuch. They knew Genesis. They knew the story of Abraham. They recited it in synagogue. They recited it with their families, with their children. But let's slow down and just look at the background here. Number one, Israel was God's chosen nation. God's chosen nation. That's important to say it like that. It's not every individual in Israel, but the nation as a whole was chosen by God to have a special relationship with him. We see this in Exodus 19.6. We have the Great Commission in the New Testament, but they had their own mission statement in the Old Testament. If you go back to Exodus 19, we're going to be jumping around to some passages here in the Old Testament to consider what was Israel's purpose. It wasn't to go out like we are to do. It wasn't to go out and proclaim. It wasn't to leave their land and travel around the world to proclaim the truth about God. They had a very specific statement that God gave them. In Exodus 19, 6, if you turn there, this is their mission statement. Everybody agrees this is their mission statement. He says, well, let's back up to see verse 5 so you get the context. So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. God owns it all. He owns every person, every nation, everything. Everything in the universe is owned by God. Everything is his. And now he says to them, one puny little nation, he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's Israel's responsibility before God? You shall be a priest, he says, in a holy nation. They're there to worship God. They're there to serve him. They do the things with the temple and the tabernacle before that, that God requires them to do. They are to be his holy people. He says, these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You're supposed to teach them about God. And he goes into the Ten Commandments and all the way through the Mosaic Code, all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. God is saying, you're my chosen people. And your goal is not to go out. That's ours now. Your goal is to set up camp right here in this land that I give you and worship me. And when other people ask, why do you do that? They're supposed to tell them about the true God. When other people are attacked by Israel and wonder why they're winning all these battles, how can a God bring these people as slaves out of Egypt and conquer a land? They're supposed to say it's because of Yahweh. Their God. In fact, that's what happens when they come into the land and they're about to go into Jericho. The spies end up there. And what does Rahab say? We've heard about Yahweh, your God. She fears Yahweh. She's converted just simply from what she's heard about this powerful God. And she says, It's already done. You're going to get the land. 
basically. She says, God has given it to you. Yahweh has given it to you already. That's their purpose statement. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if you go forward to Deuteronomy chapter 7, why did God choose Israel? Was it because they were good people? Was it because they already knew him and had some close relationship? Did God show up and take a poll and say, hey, you want to join my camp? No, look, he tells us right here in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. He says, so Moses took the carts. Sorry, I'm in numbers. That's not going to work. For you are a holy people. So there's their mission again. You're a holy people to Yahweh your God. A city on a hill is the idea. People are supposed to come there to learn about God. You're a holy people. Yahweh your God has chosen you. There's election of the nation. They've, God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Of all the nations, hundreds, hundreds and thousands of different family groups, clans, nations at that time and today as well. God has chosen one whole nation, Israel. Not America. I know that's popular sometimes today. God has chosen America. I can't find America in my book anywhere, in my Bible, right? Now, thankfully, our founders were mostly Christian Christian light at least. And we've had freedoms here and we're thankful for that. But God chose Israel and no other nation. Now back to the text here. He says, of all the people on the earth, you're not just my people, you're my treasured possession. Why did he do that? Verse 7, Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It wasn't because they were some great nation, so powerful, with mighty armies. That would have been more like Egypt. Or they had more people than any other nation in the world. No, God says, you were, you were few. You were puny. But because Yahweh loved you. Why did God choose them? Why does God choose you, believer? Because really, when it comes to it, you're, you're kind of puny like Israel. Why did God do it? Because he loved you. And it says, because he loved them and kept the oath which he swore to their fathers. Yahweh brought you out of the strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You shall know, therefore, that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. He goes on to talk about the punishments that will happen if they disobey God. So God chose a people. He chose a nation. Yahweh made Israel into a great nation, just like he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But this does not mean every single person in Israel was saved. In fact, what happened as soon as they got into the desert and heard about these cities and these armies of the Canaanites in the land? Twelve spies came back, ten gave a bad report, and the whole nation believed it. Oh, we're puny. Let's go back to Egypt. It's better to be slaves than to be killed by Canaanites. 40 years in the desert. And the book of Hebrews says, you know why? Unbelief. They wandered for 40 years in the desert because of unbelief. Just because God chose the nation does not mean he chose every person for salvation. 
A physical choosing to bless a nation is not the same as a spiritual salvation. Yes, they had a special relationship with God that no other nation has ever had or will ever have. Yet that's not a relationship that you can equate to everyone being born again. All you have to do is read the Old Testament. There are some people that make it in that you wonder when you get to Hebrews 11 how they even got in. Samson, Jephthah. Yes, there were scoundrels saved in the Old Testament, but it was by faith. That's the point of Hebrews 11, by faith. They received their salvation by faith. But there's plenty in the Old Testament that did not believe. Plenty. Sometimes they're called sons of the devil, sons of Belial. Just troublemakers. Murders happening. Incest. All of these sins. All of these unbelieving individuals in the Old Testament. So don't think that when God chose the nation, that means every single Israelite must be saved or God's promises have fallen to the ground. Paul's going to argue throughout this section of Romans that is not the case. Secondly, Israel was given promises of salvation. So of all the nations of the earth, God chose Israel. Why? To keep the promise that he made to Abraham? That's the only answer we get. Why did he choose Abraham? His sovereign purpose. His sovereign purpose. Abraham was the original Jew. He was the pagan called out of Ur of the Chaldees and led by God to the promised land. He was the one that God made a covenant with to bless him and his descendants forever. In fact, Abraham's family worshipped idols. The first Jew was a Gentile who worshipped idols until God chose him and saved him. We love the story of Abraham. But then we get to the New Testament and it's Sometimes we resist this idea of election and God's sovereignty there. Because that's personal. We're involved there. It's great to hear about Abraham and these guys in the Old Testament. Well, it's great for us to be saved by a sovereign, loving God as well. As I've told you many times, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of election, predestination, it's comforting. It helps you sleep at night knowing that it's all in God's hands. That your salvation rests with him and not with you. Israel was given promises of salvation. That started with the father of the nation, Abraham. In the Abrahamic covenant, God made promises, everlasting promises, he says, to Abraham, that they would be blessed, that they would have a land, and through Abraham, all the families of the earth, including Israel, they're one of all the families, would be blessed. We've looked at this already in Romans 4, where Paul says that all those who believe are spiritual children of Abraham. The promise, though, in Israel, that from Israel would come a seed that would come from Abraham and rule the world. Abraham had a promise that not only would he have a great nation that were his physical descendants, not only would he have all this land, that was one of the best lands in the area of the Middle Eastern area. But that he would have from him someone who would come and rule over all the nations all over the world. So Israel was given promises of salvation. That this king would come. This king who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That he would rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. He would do so from Jerusalem and he would be their savior. God with us, Emmanuel, the one who was to come. In fact, when Jesus is born, 
Mary takes them up to the temple. Remember that old man in the temple? And he says, I've been waiting to die. It's, I'm so old. I've been waiting to see the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Not just the personal Savior, but the one promised in the Old Testament that would come and redeem Israel. Number three, we're working back up to our verse here at the end of Romans 9, 6. Number three, Israel has rejected her Messiah. That's why chapters 9 through 11 are in Romans. Israel, for the most part, has rejected her Messiah. You remember when Jesus was going about his earthly ministry. And he was rejected from day one. As soon as he was baptized, people were out to get him. People were out to make him stumble. People were out to make him fall. People were out to capture him, kill him, to close his mouth for speaking the truth. In fact, they eventually called for his crucifixion, didn't they? There's always this big debate. Who's to blame for Jesus's death? Well, the Jews said crucify him and the Romans did it. They're all to blame for Jesus' death. All sinners are to blame for Jesus' death. But they wanted him put to death. They rejected him on the most part. Now, of course, we know, we know that there were some who were saved. The disciples, the early church was all Jewish. 500, it says in the book of Acts. And Paul says there were 500 who believed in the early, early church at his resurrection. But look at what Paul says. Go back to Romans 9 and look at verse 2. This is how he says it. He has a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So Paul doesn't say, oh, you're a Jew. You're saved. Don't worry about it. He says he has a sorrow. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are cursed because they don't believe. They are going to hell. They are going to suffer eternal damnation, which Paul preaches because that's part of the gospel to tell people the bad news before you tell them the good news. And he says, I love them so much. I wish I could take their place. He knows it's not possible, but he wishes he could. Why? Because they don't believe in the very Messiah that was promised them. Go to Romans 9, 31. After he finishes with election here, he comes out of this talking specifically about the, the, uh, the Jews of his day, the unbelieving Israel. And he says, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. They're trying to obey the law. They're trying to do works righteousness. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. And Paul says, they didn't even get that. Why? Why did they not arrive at this righteous state? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now he quotes the Old Testament. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, that's Christ, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. The one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. And then he says, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Because they don't believe. They're not saved. You can't just be born a Jew and be saved. No one comes into this world saved except John the Baptist. And you're not John the Baptist. There's no other Jews that are born into this world today, automatically saved. And people who teach that, that you can believe in Christ or be a Jew to be saved. That's heretical. There's only one way of salvation through Jesus Christ for the Jew and for the Greek. That's us Gentiles. Israel, though, has rejected her Messiah. There's about 15 million Jews today. Of those 15 million Jews in the world, a very small percent believe in Christ. Minuscule. There are some out there. 
There are some who come to our churches and join our churches in America. There's some in Israel. There's solid churches in Israel. The Master's University has a school there, and they're ministering as well, and they know of believing churches there. But so few out of 15 million, especially when you consider that it was her Messiah. Jesus said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. He ministered among them. Yes, there were some Gentiles that came into the fringes of his ministry. And he gave us all hope there by what he said to them. But he says, I came to the lost sheep of Israel and they rejected him. Now, fourthly, back to what Paul is saying here. We've got this history of Israel built up here in number one through three. But number four, Israel is not the same as true Israel. When Paul says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, he's speaking of a subset within national Israel. There's national Israel and they were chosen. But we know that's not a a choosing that every person would be saved. And Paul says, they're not all Israel. The first Israel being ethnic Israel. And the second Israel being a subset of ethnic Israel. And that second mention of Israel is slightly different. Do you notice? That's important because some believe here that Paul has suddenly brought Gentiles back in here. And he's saying, well, there's Israel And then there's all the believers today, and that's Israel today. That's not what he's doing. He's not talking about Gentiles here. He's talking about Jews. The context here is ethnic Israel. And he's not speaking of Gentiles being believers here. He already did that back in chapter 4. Let's go back to chapter 4, 16. We don't have to insert it into chapter 9. He's already covered this in chapter 4. Gentiles are children of Abraham, spiritually speaking. 4.16, for this reason is by faith, in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, that's the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. See, Abraham was given that promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through one of his descendants, the seed singular. And Paul here tells us Abraham had faith. And he was justified. He was reckoned as righteous before God. And we have faith. And he says in verse 17, As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you. There is the promise. And the presence of him who he believe, whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. So he is saying, All those who believe are the spiritual children of Abraham. Read the book of Galatians. Later, Paul says that. In many ways there as well. That's not what he's talking about in Romans 9. He's dealing with this big question of what about Israel? And if suddenly he throws the Gentiles in here and says, actually the Gentile church is now Israel, that really defeats the purpose of Romans 9 through 11. The argument in Romans 9 through 11 is what about Israel? Why aren't they saved? And he's going to go on arguing that. If, If the nation of Israel is gone and no promises that God made to them would ever come to fruition, then he could just say it right here and be done. Actually, those were temporary promises. We're done. Move on to chapter 12. But he doesn't. He makes his case here. What kind of case is he making? Look closely. Back in Romans 9, 6. The LSB, the NASB has the word descended. It's probably in italics there. Italics means that the translators put it in there to help the reader. Not all Israel is descended from Israel. But if you take out descended, it's literally, for they are not all Israel who are from Israel. The from is important. It's the Greek word that means out of. 
X. We get our word exit. When you leave out of a place, you exit it. X in Greek means from out of. There's this whole nation called Israel. And from out of Israel, there are this true Israel. Sometimes called the spiritual Israel. Believers, in other words. Those who believe in Christ. Those who believe in the Messiah. Those who are saved by faith. Reformed professor John Murray said, he's talking here about an Israel within ethnic Israel. He's not switched subjects. It's from out of this whole nation that some have been saved. Paul being an example. Paul is a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees who got converted and the promises that God gave are applied to him. But it's through faith, not because he was born a Jew. It's through faith. There's a small group here. There's a small group when you take all of Israel who do believe. They're the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. The remnant. The remnant. Look at the end of chapter 9. This is remnant theology here. 927. This is where Paul's going. So he starts here in verse 6. And he's going to wrap it up near the end here in 27 through 29. And he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Now Isaiah is talking to the nation of Israel. The Jews. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. It is the remnant that will be saved. It's a smaller group than the whole group. It's the remnant. Verse 28, for the Lord will execute his word on the land. Israel will be judged for their sins as a nation thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord Sabaoth had left to us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. A remnant survived. Faithful Israel. Believing Israel. The disciples. Nicodemus when he was converted. Joseph of Arimathea. These Jews who saw their Messiah. Believed in their Messiah. And it still happens today. God never promised that every single Jew would be saved. Go back to Romans 2.28. There's always a remnant. But you're not saved by being a Jew. Being circumcised. Following the law. Romans 2.28. He's already dealt with this. He says, for he's not a Jew who's one outwardly. Because the Jews were saying, Paul, your gospel's false. It's by the law. It's by works. And Paul says, no, no. He's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, meaning a true Jew, a true follower of God, a true person that worships the Lord out of ethnic Israel, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul in chapter 1, he dealt with Gentiles. And chapter 2, he deals with unbelieving Israel. And he says here, you're not saved by obeying the law. You're saved just like Gentiles are through faith. There's a remnant. Again, in chapter 2 here, he's not saying that Gentiles are Jews. He's talking to the Jews about having this born-again regeneration, Holy Spirit conversion that happens in the heart. Not by works, but by God's grace. In other words, Paul's saying, being born a Jew. He's saying that in verse 2. He's saying, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 9. Being a Jew does not save you. It does not make you part of true spiritual believing Israel. The remnant that believes. Just being born a Jew does not save you. You remember John the Baptist was preaching. He got a lot of fire too in his ministry. People didn't like what he was saying. 
And the Jews of his day thought they were saved. We're all God's people, they said. We are saved. Here's what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, also in Luke 3. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. God can make rocks into people if he wants to. He doesn't need Israel. They need him. They need to have faith in him. They need to trust in him. You can't look to your ancestry. You can't look to your heritage. You can't say, I have 1% Jewish blood, so I'm saved. They had 100% Jewish blood. And that didn't automatically make them saved. That gave them a privilege, many privileges. The Messiah coming from the Jews being the primary one. But they still must believe. They were privileged in many ways. But as one Bible scholar said, it's not by race, but by grace that we are saved. It's not according to what clan we're born into, but by God's grace. I like what the Puritan John Flavel said here. He said, if Abraham's faith be not in your hearts, it will be no advantage that Abraham's blood runs in your veins. So he's saying, if you're a Jew with Abraham's blood in your veins, there's no advantage if, if his faith isn't in your hearts. Flavel goes on, it will be a poor plea for Judas when he shall stand before Christ in judgment to say, Lord, I was one of thy family. I preached for thee. I did eat and drink in thy preference. Judas was a Jew. Do you think he can stand before God and claim his Jewish heritage for salvation? No, he did not have faith. He rejected the Messiah because of his own desires. So I need to ask you today, in conclusion, are you trusting today in something other than Christ alone, through faith alone? Are you trusting in your family heritage or your church experience or your upbringing or your nation? Are you saying to yourself, well, my parents were Christians and I grew up in a Christian home and my dad was a deacon and my uncle was a pastor and my other uncle was an elder and my whole family was all Christian. Of course, I'm a Christian. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord that you had that growing up because a lot of people don't. But that does not make you a Christian simply because you grew up in a Christian family or something your parents did. And I've had people say that to me. Well, when were you saved? Or do you remember a time that you learned about Christ? No, you know, I don't, I don't ever remember that. I just remember my uncle was a deacon and I turned 18. I left home and everything was great. And always, always been a great guy. Don't trust in your family. You may not remember the exact moment that you're saved, but realize if you're saved, that's because you had faith in Christ. Now, of course, God grants you the ability to have faith, but it's not based on your family or your heritage. Maybe it's something you did at a young age. Maybe it's baptism. I got baptized when I was five. Of course I'm saved. I can point back to that. Are you trusting in Christ or you're dunking in the water when you were five? Better make sure you're trusting in Christ. What your parents maybe wanted you to do or pushed you to do or some friends pushed you to do does not matter. What matters is you had faith in Christ. Did you walk an aisle? Did you pray a prayer? Did you do all these things that are added today to an evangelistic call? Are you trusting in those things or in Christ? It's only faith in him that saves. That's what Paul's getting at here. The nation of Israel thought they were saved. Are you saying that you're such a good patriot in America? But of course you're a Christian because all good Christians are good patriots. Does that make you a Christian though? Does that make you a Christian that you were born in America? There's a big debate, right? Are we a Christian nation or not? 
It doesn't look very Christian to me. There's a lot of Christians in our nation. Leaders, many of them are not Christian, clearly. Many people are not Christians. Look at some of the surveys on what they believe about Christ and God. You think being born in America or Texas or a small town in Texas where everybody's a Christian and everybody goes to church? Do you think that makes you a Christian? We used to think that. I think we're all a lot wiser now. Many of us did probably growing up. Small town. Everybody I know is a Christian. Just got different denominations, but we're all saved here. Can't we just get along? What about your association with the church? Do you believe that just because you go to church and you can look back on that, you can point to that and all the good things you've done. When somebody asks why you're saved, is your first thought all the things I've done? I've been such a good person. I've been in church my whole life and I did all these great things. And that's what, that's what you're trusting in? We can't look to those things. It's only faith in Christ. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 22. He's talking here to people who stand before him on the last day, the day of judgment. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy? In your name, cast out demons? In your name, do many miracles? Do we not do all this stuff? Do we not go to your church? Do we not give to the church? Do we not read our Bibles, check that box? Do we not do all the things that someone should do? Do we not check all the check marks and tell other people about you? And he says, I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, he knows their heart. Not only that, but he knows their actions. That's why he says lawlessness. You might have said you were doing all these things for me, but you were practicing lawlessness. Either because they were doing those things for their own desire, but more likely they were also living in sin. Not like a believer. Not as a regenerate believer should live. They were continuing to live in sin. They didn't care about it. And they were practicing. They were living out lawlessness. And no association with Christ or his word or his church or his people would make up for that. They lived out a life against him. Did we not walk and talk as Christians, Jesus? Did we not go to church and do good things and try our best to be good little people? You know what Jesus is going to say? If you don't have faith in me alone, depart from me. He's going to say, depart from me. Because your heritage doesn't count. Your history doesn't count. You can't trust in any of those things. It's only in Christ. It's only in Christ that we can be saved. Yes, those things can be wonderful. Our past, God's providence, all these great things that he gave us. We shouldn't reject the good things that he gave us even before we were saved. But we don't look to them. We don't put our foundation of salvation on that. Christ alone. Faith alone. We must turn to him and turn from our sins. And now that we're saved, we must speak rightly about what he's done. And we must say, it's not by anything we did. It's not by anything our parents did. It's not by the family we were born into. It is by grace alone. Even if he worked through our family to save us, it's by grace alone. So let's thank him for that now. Lord, thank you that your promises never fail. That we can look to Israel as an example. There's a remnant even to this very day. We're thankful that you're still saving people. That you've brought the Gentiles in through faith as well. We thank you, Lord, that these covenant promises, these covenant promises to Abraham, the new covenant that's mentioned in the prophets, applies to believing Gentiles as well. We do pray for Israel that you would Save more, 
that you would save more Jews, that we could somehow help in that endeavor and that we would pray that that would be the case. So many privileges given to them, Lord. We have a heart for the lost, including Israel. To help us as we go out and take this message to lost souls, we pray this for your glory. Amen.